Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Have you heard the term zombie offices? No, I don't believe so. When I say that, what do you think it means? I'm going to guess people that aren't engaged or something and just wandering around the office. Close. It's uh, actually offices that are kind of vacant, except for one or two people that kind of come in. They call that zombie offices. And they're trying to figure out how to bring zombie offices, quote unquote, back to life. They're going to convert those to apartments. I'll tell you what, maybe I can just Airbnb my office on Fridays. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 345. I'm Reed Smith. That's Chris Boyer. I'm wondering if I can Airbnb my podcast time and have someone step in for me sometime. Maybe we can just have like those avatars just start doing the podcast oh, on our yes, behalf. Please. Like we wouldn't even show up. <laughs> I'm afraid that's what all the meetings are going to turn into. It's just everybody sending their avatar to a meeting. It's just a bunch of avatars reporting back. Well, welcome one and all. Thanks for joining us for yet another episode of Touchpoint. I certainly appreciate the support. Quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. It's where you can go sign up for the TPS report, email that comes out every Monday, five articles to start your week. Thanks to all of you who have done that. Uh, Be sure to tell a friend, rate, review, subscribe, all that kind of fun stuff. We're going to take a quick pause here, let you go do that, and then be back with today's show. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Today's topic is focusing on three things that I think that myself sometimes struggle with. And let me see if it resonates with you as well. Being strategic, being agile, and being focused. It's a bit of a challenge as leaders in our organizations. Yeah, it's almost like, can you really do that, right? Agile and focused. Sometimes that feels like that maybe runs counter to the other one. So strategic, agile, and focused. I do like that though. Yeah, so we're going to we're going to jump into all of those and we're going to top it all off with a really great interview later on in the show with Eric Qualman, who was a keynote speaker at this year's Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy Summit and some of you may have seen him on stage, but he and I had a chance to talk to sit down and talk about his newest book. But before we jump into his interview, let's talk a little bit about what you brought up as the big paradox of being strategy-focused, and agile. 
it doesn't make sense sometimes because I think a lot of us think of agility as being sort of short attention span. But there's actually a whole discipline around strategic agility that uh, I think that you and I should talk a little bit about. Yeah, I think a lot of times when you hear strategic or strategy or something like that, it sounds like, again, maybe it's unfairly, but it sounds like it's in-depth, very complex, long-running. You know what I mean? Like it it does not sound agile and nimble just by definition. Yeah, it sure doesn't. It sounds like this is your true north. You got to focus in on it. You got to go towards it. But, you know, very similar to agile project management, you could still be agile while also being focused. So let's talk a little bit about it. And we'll start first with a case study that we found. This case study actually is on the National Library for Medicine's website. It's a kind of an important case study that they actually looked at how a certain organization was able to be strategy-focused while also agile over a series of years. We have a link to it in the show notes, but they start off saying that strategic agility enables organizations to sense and seize opportunities, manage uncertainty, of which we've had a lot lately, right, over the last couple of years, Mm -hmm. and then adapt to new changes. And so they use this case study to kind of outline where they feel are, are good, good approaches for organizations to start to become more strategy-focused and agile. Four dimensions of flexibility. I think that's a class. Uh, it's like the stretch lab down here, like outside, outside the building. <laughs> so the first one, the operational dimension, deals with the ability to adapt operations to different environmental conditions and variety of services. Well, think about environmental conditions could be there's a pandemic and suddenly we have to shift our, you know, our healthcare resources to this, or there's a shortage of staff. How do we change things? When you start to look at that, that, that flexibility there of the operational dimension, it's, it's just another way to say you have a strategy, you have a focus, but you can be very nimble because Real life happens on that pathway towards that true north. Other things could be operational aspects that relate to management of rapidly changing business requirements and iterative delivery practices. As things change, we all as a health systems, we changed and kind of focused our efforts through the pandemic to address COVID. And that caused an operational change in the way we did work. We started working together. We had collaborative teams working together. That's a big part of how we can use this uh, rapidly changing business environment to address this iterative delivery. The other couple here, organizational dimensions and strategic dimensions, uh, organizational dimensions deal with models of organization and labor flexibility, uh, whereas strategic dimensions may be viewed through you know, culture, leadership, dynamic capabilities that enable an organization to sense and seize opportunities, they say. So kind of interesting, right? I mean, that fits with the idea of strategic, right? You know, especially the opportunistic piece. Right? So you got the ability to adapt to the you know, your environment. You've got, you know, kind of changing business requirements and the need to adapt there labor, and then more of a culture piece, maybe. They go on to say in this case study, which is a really good case study, I encourage you all to read it. They say that strategy is not just a plan, but it's a means to achieve agility through the implementation of those plans. And therefore, organizations have to achieve agility by forming an appropriate strategy and embedding that strategic vision, values, and goals across all levels of the organization. And that's what they call agile transformation. Agile transformation. That is very cool. I think sometimes when we say agile, do you think people get sidetracked with like the frameworks and sprints and more of a development type definition? Absolutely. Agility originally came from like, software development firms within IT departments, right? Or project management offices, so to speak. But what we're talking about here is enterprise agility. It's a little bit different. It's based on the same concepts as your agile project management, 
in that you kind of have business sprints, so to speak. You have to check in regularly and you can have scrums and you can put a backlog together, so to speak. But not to get too technical, it's just transforming the way you do strategy and strategic management in a more agile way. Another way they call it is business agility or even enterprise agility. Although this process guidance for transformation is something I think that a lot of strategic officers or strategy people across the organizations know about and they can understand, really defining what enterprise agility is has not really been done so far. And so what they try to do with this case study is try to identify some things that they encountered while a business actually transformed over the last, uh, I think it was like five years, right? They looked at a organization that provided care services for disabled people and that had many different types of service offerings. So if you think about that, it's not hard to paint the, the line towards, that's almost like what a health system does. We provide care for a population and we have many different types of service offerings. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what they focused on when they were like, when to, to track this. Yeah, well, first is a little bit what we've been talking about, right? Is like what agility means. They said it includes the need for accountability, discipline, empowerment, consumer focus, responsiveness, you know, et cetera. They also looked at performance management in an agile environment, of course. And what I mean by that is, you know, for someone to be accountable, performance needs to be measured, but Agile focuses on the team rather than the individual. So how would you be able to manage the performance of an individual in an agile environment rather than measuring like the team performance? And then the strategy. So it needs to be responsive uh, to the environment, they say, and uh, because of that, updated regularly. So discussion included the idea of a three-year rolling plan. That's kind of interesting, right? It's like you think about planning and, I guess, calendar time frames, three months, nine months, three years, five years, you know, whatever it may be. But yeah, more of a rolling plan. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. And I've worked for some organizations that did follow sort of, you know, they had A4 boards and they had weekly check-ins and that sort of thing. I get the impetus around this. The last thing they looked at is how do you sustain agile behaviors and performance management? Now, again, they looked at this organization over five years. Some of those years were actually during the pandemic too, which posed a really interesting turn on things. So let's jump in a little bit to what they found. First thing was, is that strategic agility requires three different horizons to coexist. A long-term aspiration, all right, check, a medium-term set of goals, and a short-term response to real-time performance management. That's kind of interesting. You can kind of have that aspirational, you know, more like the vision maybe. And then those goals are really more set kind of in that that midterm. And then, you know, again, how do you measure and react uh, in, in the present? Creating, you know, whatever that might be. The other thing that they said is that by introducing an approach of strategic agile management is that you have to introduce a number of other conditions, including sufficiently resourcing it. You have to have a team that's responsible and cascade education of that across the entire enterprise. The other thing is you have to have leadership that's not only bought into it, they have to be stable. You can't have like leadership switch throughout because whenever leadership changes, that could cause a lot of instability in this in this framework. And then of course, the suitable performance management data. So you could reflect back and look and say, we're meeting our goals, we're actually on our track to our goals, or we're off track. How do we get ourselves back on the right path? So in effect, they came out with, in order to be strategic, you need to learn as a leadership team, as a strategy team, to be agile. And you also need to focus. And so let's talk about, after this break, let's come back and talk about how you can build your company's strategic agility through six principles that um, actually have some real-life illustrations. We'll do that right after this brief pause. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. 
With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Like you mentioned before the break, since six principles to build your company's strategic agility. So again, as we're kind of thinking about this, if you if you remember back, we we wrapped up that last section talking about you know what they found. I really think it's interesting if you think about that kind of long term vision, medium term goals, short term response, that kind of thing. And so, practically, kind of how does that play out? What does that look like? What are some of those principles you need to keep in mind as you as you think through this? Yeah, and we're basing this on a Harvard Business Review article. Our friends over at Harvard Business Review. They actually released an article this year that outlines six principles. They start off the article by kind of doing a parallel comparison of in early 2020, Airbnb, how they actually responded through the pandemic. In early 2020, Airbnb was headed for a banning year. Bookings were up. You know, everything was in place. The IPO was set for spring. Then COVID hit and more than $1 billion of bookings disappeared. All their expansion plans were postponed. And they cut a quarter of their workforce. However, by the end of 2020, their revenues had recovered and the company completed one of its most successful tech IPOs in history. Now compare that to California Pizza Kitchen, also an innovative uh, restaurant pizza chain. Also a three-letter acronym. Yeah, CPK. (laughs) (laughs) And during the COVID crisis, they moved quickly to deliver curbside delivery up its online capabilities. You know, they they did all the things that restaurants kind of did to respond to that. And unfortunately, despite the reputation for innovation and forward thinking, the company filed for bankruptcy in July of 2020. So why? Why are these two different companies? And that's really where they get into these principles. And I mean, ultimately they, they call out in here that Airbnb was successful in navigating the crisis, you know, that they identified and, you know, were able to deviate from, you know, I guess more of a static or rigid, or I don't know what the word is, you know, strategic plan and and adapt in real time. So they call out, you know, three ways that they did that. And, And first was that they were nimble enough to avoid, you know, the worst impacts, and when they were hit, they were re- robust enough to absorb some of the damage. And finally, that they were resilient enough to be able to accelerate forward faster and more effectively than their peers. So they call this the triple A's of strategic agility to avoid, absorb, and accelerate. Much like boxing. I yeah, think. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, the key is not to get hit in the first place, but anyway, <laughs> that's, that's entirely different. So, but anyway, so they decided to then break this down into these six principles, and that's what that's what we'll kind of go through now. So the first one, which I think this is interesting, and I've actually talked to my team a, a fair amount about this just conceptually, but it's this idea of speed over perfection. You know, some people talk about you know, perfection is the, you know, enemy of good or when's good enough, good enough. And you and I've talked about that some, Chris, but opportunities, they say, come and go quickly during a crisis. So the organization has to be ready and willing to act, even if it may sacrifice some of the quality and predictability in the process. The other principle related to this is prioritize flexibility over planning. Now, I know a lot of people in strategy probably shiver when I say that. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, but when you think about it, strategy is often taught as a cascade of choices around where to play and how to win. And they're typically built into strategic plans that are over you know months or years or whatever it might be. In crisis, strategic plans can easily become an anchor that locks the organization onto a path that is no longer relevant. So at times, if things are there to kind of precipitate, you might have to deviate from your strategic plan in order to be flexible. And that's principle number two. Third one, they talk about the prioritization of diversification over optimization. Diversification over optimization. That's kind of interesting. So they call it in here that like during the pandemic, for example, a lot of organizations struggled or maybe even ultimately failed, but it wasn't because they weren't nimble or innovative. It's because they had kind of a single, they call it devastating blow, you know, and the root of the problem was 
the fact that uh, they were not diversified enough or had an overemphasis on efficiency and optimization. I hadn't really thought about it in that way, but that makes sense. I mean, you think about diversification in your finances or investments, right? You know, are all your eggs in one basket? You know, I, I don't know. That's kind of interesting. Principle four is it prioritizing empowerment over hierarchy. And they say systems are most vulnerable at their weakest point. A hierarchy is the most vulnerable at the top. So what you have to do is in the matter of crisis, you have to empower your teams at the lowest level so they could be more robust, more nimble, and the more decentralized, by the way, you won't hit that single devastating blow because you'll have many different teams addressing multiple different things that are coming upon them during a crisis. Fifth one on the list. I really like this one, and it's kind of interesting in a way. You know, prioritize learning over blaming. It says it's been well established that organizational cultures that reward risk taking and tolerate failure move more quickly than those that don't. All right. You know, we always hear the, you know, you know, fail fast and I don't know, whatever the saying is uh, and all that kind of stuff. So this idea of innovation and moving quickly is not new necessarily. I think it's the second part here that I hadn't really considered, which is if people are criticized for failing, they're less likely to take risk. All right. Yeah, I agree. And in a crisis, this can be fatal. That's the interesting part here, right? Is like if you have a culture that allows people to fail and take chances, then when you do come into these unknown situations, that risk-taking and opportunistic, I guess, viewpoint of the world can actually be what saves you, I guess. And then that leads us to principle six, which is prioritize resource modularity and mobility over resource lock-in. Now, you and I, a, a number of episodes ago, we talked about you know how health systems, we have a siloed approach towards how we structure our organization. And we have specialists, we have nurses, and we have doctors, etc., right? Very specific people. In this particular case, they say it's important to build resources at your organization that are modular and or mobile so they can be reconfigured or moved as needed. And I think we started to see that, right? Where we have nurses move into a virtual setting and doctors move into a virtual setting. That is an example of modularity. I've even been on teams where we had people that assumed roles that weren't in their job description just to address that that task at hand, so to speak. The whole point here is the more nimble you can be as an organization, you can reconfigure and and address that crisis in multiple different ways. So those are the six principles, Reid, of uh, strategic agility. So we talked about strategy and couching strategy as being a long-term kind of a true north vision and then kind of breaking it up so you can be a little bit more agile and we just shared some agile principles that would be really good for us to adopt. Now let's talk a little bit about focus. And we'll do that via an interview that I had with Eric Qualman. Now, many of you may have seen Eric Qualman at this year's Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy Summit. He's a speaker. He's an author. He talks about focus. And in fact, his most recent book actually illustrates a project that he's been undertaking himself personally and one that he is sharing with other leaders that he talks to. It's called The Focus Project. And he and I had a chance to sit down and talk a lot about focus and what focus means, how to start to adopt good principles yourself as an individual leader and in your organization around focus. So after this break, we're going to go to that interview, and then you and I will come back afterwards and we'll close out the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast. And today I am excited to have someone join our show who hasn't been here before, but I have been a fan of yours, Eric, since uh, the book Social Nomics came out. And this is Eric Qualman, or Equal Man, as he sometimes is known as. Welcome to the show. No, thanks for having me, Chris. It's awesome to be here. 
I'm a big fan of yours. Like I said, I've read your books and you actually presented at a recent healthcare conference. I'd love for you to share maybe a little bit about your background, your experience, and give people some context as to who you are. Yeah, so uh, I'm Eric Quammen. Some of you might know me as Equal Man just because it's my first initial last name. And in the digital world, that's that's what you become sometimes is just that moniker of Equal Man. I've been in the digital space a long time. So going all the way back before the web existed, actually, because I was an intern at Cadillac. And part of my role as an intern was actually to program Cadillac.com. I've been in the digital space. and I've loved it ever since. And then now digital is just in everything. So it's just been a fascinating ride to see that happen. And then as you mentioned about roughly about 13 years ago, I wrote a book called Social Nomics. So I was the head of marketing at Travel Zoo and I wrote a book called Social Nomics. And then I was fortunate that that, and along with a video that was called Social Media Revolution went massively viral. And then all of a sudden I found myself in this whole new world of speaking and writing books. And I didn't quit my day job right away. I actually kind of straddled it. So for all you entrepreneurs that are listening out there, that you can do that. We can get into that if we like. But I just straddled it for a couple of years. And then for basically over a decade now, I've been writing books and speaking on stage, primarily around digital leadership. And so this has been a wild ride. So that's primarily what I do. And I'm a, I'm a professor at Northwestern. I teach digital leadership at Northwestern University as well. And so, so those, are, those are some of the fun fun things that we do. And your background really aligns closely with what a lot of our listeners are kind of interested in. I want to start first to talk about socialnomics, because as I mentioned, that was one of the first books of yours that I read, that viral video, right, about the social revolution. I remember when that came out, that came out at a time when health systems were very reluctant to embrace social media. And me and a, and a handful of others, we were trying to rattle the cage to get them to start to adopt that. As we look at like the social, what, what some of the ideas that you brought forward in that book, many of those, those, I, I guess at the time they were kind of projections or, or even predictions as to what would be happening in the social economy. They kind of came true in that social became an entirely new way for us to communicate online. If you reflect back on what you wrote and where we are today, what are some things that you see are still salient and relevant? And what are some things that maybe have evolved? It's really relevant today because you always got to remember that pioneers get pushback. And at the time when I did the video, so this is a, called Social Media Revolution. It was an animated piece, which had a cool look and feel. We're using Adobe After Effects. It was somewhat new at the time to use something like that. And I primarily made it for people like you, Chris, because I was out there talking to CEOs and heads of healthcare and, and mentioning that social media is actually this huge business tool. It's going to change the way we live and do business. And most of them are not in agreement. They go, yeah, and then they wouldn't do anything. So that's why I needed to develop the video that really knocked them over the head. So that's why I pulled data that showed this is the wave, this is the change. And so that video really helped waken people up. And so people like yourself were able to use that as a tool. Now I bring that up because pioneers get pushback because my publisher, when I showed them the video, they said, well, that's a fun, interesting video, but that's how's that gonna sell books? You don't really mention yourself or the book in the video. I go, that's the whole point. It's you have to provide value. And I even asked, did you even read social nomics? Because that's what the whole <laughs> whole book is about, is that it's getting around this advertising thing. So it's relevant today because there's people probably listening that are going to push back on whatever it might be the soup, soup of the day, whether that's generative AI, whether that's machine learning, whatever that is uh, in the healthcare space. And there's a lot of paths that could be. But you got to understand that at the time, when you look back, it's kind of laughable that a publisher would say, well, how is that video supposed to help sell books? Because it doesn't mention you or the book itself. And so that was a new way of thinking. Fortunate that the video went viral in part because people like you needed it. Everyone, I needed it to kind of use it to say, look, this is going to knock you over the head to like really wake up to understand that this is what social media is all about. Now, it's very kind to you. Some of the stuff did come to fruition. Some of it was wrong in the book. Some of the stuff that came to fruition. Interesting enough, this is another interesting story for those that have something bad for you happen this week because things happen for you, not to you. And that's taken me a while to learn that. So I actually was, like I mentioned, I was up in the Boston area and I just moved to a new place and I needed to get television and access a cable. And they go, I go, well, who do I use? DirecTV? You know, is it Comcast? They go, you got to call Fred. I'm like, call Fred? <laughs> Why do I call Fred? They're like, well, Fred has an agreement with the building you're in. I'm like, oh gosh, this is like, 
some kind of mafia agreement that this guy's got this. So he's got a 10 year contract. So they're like, I go, Fred, I need to get direct TV. He's like, oh, it'll be 800 bucks. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's free to install. He goes, no, no, no. I own the rights to the building. If you want direct TV, it's 800 bucks. I'm like, I'm not paying Fred 800 bucks. I bet there's a way I can kind of sort of, they didn't even have the word stream at the time. I go, I bet I can watch a lot of the stuff online. The reason that was helpful is because then I was able to see ahead of time that this is where the world is going to go. So at the time, I was trying to watch the Olympics and Michael Phelps, and I actually got to see it real time where everyone else is waiting for the tape delay. And I go, wait, this is the way this world's going to function is everyone's going to be what they now call streaming. That's an example of something happening for me, not to me. At the time, I wasn't happy that I couldn't get direct TV, but it actually allowed me to dig deeper into these tools to really see that vision. So there's some things that came to light. But ironically enough, the main genesis of the book, Socialnomics, still hasn't happened. So really what Socialnomic is at its core is in the healthcare industry, for example, it's that I want to be able to see if I have to figure out, oh, I've got this thing with my toe or I've got a bad hip. So I have a bad hip. I want to be able to see that 10 of my other friends have already had a bad hip and they've already figured out who's the best specialist in my area and how much they paid for that surgery. And so I don't have to redo all that research and that painstaking hours that goes into that. People have already done that for me. So that's going to happen. The question is, we don't know when. To a certain extent, it does happen with, you know, online patient communities now. Something that, you know, 13 years ago was something that was at its infancy. There would be groups, Usenet groups that would get together and talk about these things. And I think that this whole concept of bringing people together and then the whole rise of reviews and recommendations uh, through like Yelp and Google reviews, et cetera, we are on that trajectory. I think there's still some challenges within the healthcare space because not everybody's healthcare experience is the same. But one of the things I think about, though, about socialnomics is, and it kind of led to, as we flash forward to your newest book, The Focus Project, the challenge with social and the challenge with being involved online, and I remember myself asking people to become very much online, it suddenly was a lot of media consumption. And I would say that in this day and age, there is so much out there that when you're a typical healthcare consumer, that it gets to be very challenging to understand, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. Which leads me to talk about the Focus Project. I just had the pleasure of reading it over the past month or so. And you actually sometimes refer to it as sort of the anti-venom of your first book. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I call it the anti-venom to socialnomics. I've written six books now, and it's an anti-venom to socialnomics. And most of the books do have some form or component of digital leadership. And it's an anti-venom to socialnomics because socialnomics is telling people, hey, guys, this is huge. It's going to change the way we vote. It's going to change governments. It's going to change business. The social media is not just for teenagers. And all of a sudden, I saw everyone get into their phones too much. So they started to just live through their phones. And I realized that, myself included, we needed to focus on big things, not busy ones. Basically, what happened before I wrote the book was every night, and I write books and own a small company. And so technically on paper, I kind of control my own destiny when it comes to time. Uh, but a lot of you listening to that real, I realized that, no, you really have to take control of your time. So I'd go to bed every night and a lot of you will be able to identify with this. And my hair was on fire and I'd say, all right, we're not going to get sucked into the busy. I'm going to focus on the big stuff. I'm going to focus on writing a book, not just sucked into the email and all these texts and tweets and DMs on Twitter. And then every night it would be the same thing. So I go, okay, the madness has to stop. This isn't a new problem, but it's a, it's a problem that has gasoline on the fire because of all these tools that are out there at our access and they're pinging us. And so I took a two-year project to really be a guinea pig to figure out what has been said for the last thousands of years when it comes to focus, what's new research out there, and for me to kind of go out there and test so to make sure that I could focus on the big versus the busy. So that's what the Focus Project is all about. It's the not-so-simple art of doing less, comma, better. 
So it's mm. all about how do I focus on big things versus busy ones. So that's why it's, I call it an anti-venom to social nomics. It's fascinating that you yourself were the main person in this project. When you think about focus, I think we all agree we need to do it. But what are some of the key things that learnings that you would like to convey to people from the experiment you, you yourself did around the focus project? At a super high level, the three things that I learned during the process of not only doing the project myself, but also writing the book was number one, that focus is really, 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 really hard. (laughs) But the good news is, is that focus can become a habit. So you can train it just like a muscle. And that's why we go into the book, just different things you can do to train that muscle to make focus a habit. The second thing I learned is that people that are very successful are better at focus than others that aren't as successful. And it's not something that's inherent in their DNA. It's something that they've become good at over time, primarily because they have systems and processes in place. And so that's why we go into different systems and processes that you can test out and try yourself. But the number one system by far that they have is that they say no to almost everything. So they say no to almost everything. So they say yes to the big things. So they put systems and processes in place on how they can say no to opportunities that are good but not great. And then the last thing is that we've got to focus on progress, not perfection. And a lot of us get that wrong, myself included, is that if you think about New Year's resolutions, for example, is that January 1 arrives, and I bet you set up, you probably did this like I did. I go, okay, I'm going to go to bed at 9, get up at 5, so I'm getting my 8 hours of sleep, and then I'm going to journal for that first 20 minutes. Then I'm going to do some yoga and some stretching. Then I'm going to do a gratitude journal. And then I'm going to go work out for 30 minutes. And then I'm going to sit down and have a nice cup of green tea so I can reflect and, uh, on what's happened, what my day is going to be. And all of a sudden, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon on my morning routine. And so we kind of set ourselves up for failure. So it's really about progress, not perfection, meaning are you getting better one percent each day knowing that it has you're not going to get better each day but think about it more of like a roller coaster ride and that you got to just make sure that line continues to go up over time but you're going to have those dips and flows and so it's really about progress over perfection when it comes to your focus you know as you describe that i can't help though but think that and equate it a little bit to digital transformation work. As you're looking at digital transformation, I know you have a lot of experience around that as well. Organizations, sometimes when they look at the challenges around how do we transform the core of our business or how do we react to consumers or what have you, they tend to get a little bit fragmented and using leveraging similar principles around change management. I always say like with when it comes to digital transformation, you have to think revolutionary, but act evolutionary, you know, do step change along the way. I even look at like the concepts of agile project management being similar and kind of rooted in this concept and some of these concepts you're getting out of the focus project. Do you feel there's an affinity there? I mean, it, it's, it sounds to me like there's alignment here. Complete alignment. So that's probably why you've been successful in your career, Chris, because you can see that. And so when it comes to, so for example, to go down that the path that you just mentioned, so digital transformation. So you'd probably start off and you're going to brainstorm with the revolutionary items. So you're going to whiteboard all that out. You're probably going to have 40 or 50 things, if not more. In healthcare, you probably have like 200 things that you can do to transform. And then you're going to want to take that, a focused person and a focused group or a focused leader would then take that sheet and they look down, let's say there's 200 items on it. There literally should be 200 items in healthcare from a transformation perspective. So you look at the 200 items, and then you're going to go down and circle the one thing that's going to make everything else either easier or unnecessary. So you're going to circle that one thing and go, this is the big rock. This is the first principle. This is the one we've got to nail. Move that over. And then that big rock might take a while. And so you go, that's our main focus. But then you're going to actually look at a couple quick wins that are down there as well. Because you want to make sure you keep that team in a positive framework and a positive mindset and also show a couple wins. And also some of them might fail that you test, but you go, all right, let's circle three that are kind of a quicker win. And so you've got your one thing that's gonna make everything else either easier or necessary. And then you've got the three other things. And then the rest, the 196, if I'm doing the math right, you'd move that over and put that on the not yet list. So that's going to go on the not yet list so that you keep everybody focused. And then a gravitational pull over time is you're going to have meetings. And in those meetings, there's going to be new things that come up. And then you've got to be disciplined on this. you got to get this from the top down. If you have a good leader, you can kind of, they can help a lot. 
is that there's going to be, if it's a well-run meeting, you're going to say action items at the end, like, all right, here's the new things we have. And you'll list out, say, two new things. You're like, okay, great. These are two new things. Are they more important than the four that we already have? Are they more important than that big one that we already have and those three little ones we already have? The answer more times than not is probably no. But if it is, then you got to decide which one of those you're going to remove and not focus on. So that takes a lot of discipline to do that. So if you think about any meeting, if you go into a meeting and you have two new action items that you all agree that you need to do, what two are coming off the list? So that's the main issue that teams struggle with is that they don't have that discipline when it comes to focus. They think they have unlimited time. But you're exactly right when it comes to that digital transformation is you've got to attack those items systematically. And it's really just the good approach is like, what's the one thing we need to nail that's going to make everything else either necessary and then pick out a couple quick wins that don't take as long as well. Change management and agile project management principles are kind of flowing into this. But what I loved about the focus project, it really talks about you as an individual, how to how to establish your focus and across a variety of different disciplines in your life, right? And I think it's incredibly useful for leaders and leaders in, in any industry, but particularly in our space. Our healthcare industry is going through some incredible challenges right now, staffing shortages, limited budgets, whatever. But we also have this whole need to transform, not only digital transformation, but like How do we become more consumer-centric? How do we compete against the Amazons and others in the space? When you think about the Focus Project and and these these ideas that you're bringing forward here, I think it's incredibly useful for leaders in our space to sort of embrace this. you got to embrace it. You're not using old maps to do new destinations. So it's going to be difficult when you do these these new things. Um, But that's, of course, if it was easy, it would already be done. So the people who listen to this podcast and the role that you've played in your career is it can be super frustrating in the moment. But then you go, oh, that pushback is actually a signal that I'm pioneering. If I wasn't getting pushback, that's why I need to pause and go, uh-oh, I'm about to get disrupted maybe from my job or our company's going to get disrupted because we're not thinking differently. Of course, it's going to be difficult. They're not going to get it the first couple times that you present it. So it's funny. I showed a video at the healthcare conference that you mentioned. It's a Pepsi video that Jeff Gordon goes in and disguise. He's one of the best NASCAR drivers of all time. And he goes into a used car dealership. Declan's going to buy a used car. And he obviously starts to floor the car, takes it through some spins. And the salesperson's basically about to have a heart attack. Can't believe <laughs> what this guy's doing during this test drive. But I asked the woman that put on that campaign, I said, that's crazy. I go, I, I come from Detroit. I can't believe you're able to get approval on that. She goes, well, I was told no nine times for obvious reasons, Eric. And I looked at her, I go, that's crazy. How'd you like see it through? Most people would give up after the second time they're told no. She goes, well, I knew it was a no for now, not a no forever. She goes, I was just focused on getting to the yes. I wasn't focused on all these no's. Of course, they're going to say no. And of course, that makes sense once she says it, but that's not easy to do when you're in the moment. That's how you make progress is, is those listening to this podcast, when you push the envelope, it takes many pushes to do that. Heck, I just got finally after three years, three and a half years with uh, working with the, the trademark office for the word Flossom. So I want to trademark this word Flossom. And I had trademarked social nomics. I've trademarked world of mouth instead of word of mouth. And so I'd gone through the process before. It was the same process, right? I just, oh, this flossom idea is good for a new book. And I got a trademark it just like a trademark social nomics. And for whatever reason, I got one of those cycles to where it was like rejected, rejected. This is your final notice. And if everybody's filed a trademark, it costs a lot of money to file these. I go, gosh, but there's a name on here that I just kept calling. This is your attorney at the USPTO. So over the course of three years, I called her 57 times. That does not include all the emails I sent. And so finally, I get a hold of her on the phone. And finally, we get it resolved. But then I go, that was amazing. Now I can use that with our team whenever needed to say, look, this took three and a half years. The first time it took me six months to get the same exact process. Don't know why it fell into this process, but it did. And so I called her 57 times over the course of three years. That doesn't include the hundreds of emails that I sent. And so we finally got through. And so that's sometimes you have to do that when you're pushing through these new digital transformation ideas. 
That perseverance sometimes is one of the hardest things to overcome. I'm a big fan of John Cotter, right? Change management. And he has, as one of his steps of change is to not lose momentum. And I think that it's very natural for sometimes when you get caught in this loop that you're describing to have that momentum slow down and maybe even stop the project dead in its tracks. In our space, in health systems, we also are very conservative and slow to change. I think it's kind of indicative of who we are. First of all, the nature of our work is not to harm people. And the whole science around care and around delivering care is based on evidence-based, time-tested approaches. Our organization is, is, is rife with the fact of we can't do this unless it's been tested before and we've done this before. I know that you've worked with a lot of organizations, and I'm sure we're not the only ones that are slow to adopt a change. I'd love to hear your thoughts about how to apply you know, some of the concepts around the FOCUS project to help better steal people up for change in slow, conservative uh, industries. Yeah, I mean, I think it's wonderful for all your listeners, you're in an incredible space when you think about with healthcare, just being able to transform people's lives and save lives. I can't think of a more fulfilling vocation or industry to be involved in. But along with that, like you mentioned, there comes a lot of red tape and obviously you're with HIPAA and all that fun kind of stuff. And it's going to sound crazy when I say this, but I actually like working with highly regulated industries, <laughs> whether that's insurance, whether that's healthcare. The reason being is because it allows you to get ahead of the competition a little easier than when it's a little more wide open. Because when you face those barriers, similar to trying to get the trademark for Flossum, when you face those barriers, a lot of times it'll keep the competitors out. So they'll kind of just stop when they say, ah, this isn't in HIPAA or this is an XYZ, rather than to kind of work through it and get creative, or they've got low budgets, like you said, or they're understaffed. That's true across a lot of industries. But what that allows you to do is it allows you to get more creative. Sometimes actually big budgets can hinder your creativity, meaning, oh, we're just going to sign up for all these television ads that don't work because it's easy, right? This person's going to take me to lunch. They might take me to the Emmys, even though it's against a lot of rules now. It's like easy to sign that one PO rather than it is to find 100 different healthcare influencers. And so when it comes to focus and when it comes to whatever's going to change out there, you're in charge of that change. Start with the end in mind first. That's a lot of times the best way to approach some of these very complex issues. And it's a little easier to sell up the chain when you do that, especially in the healthcare industry. So start with the patient. How do I put a smile on that patient's face? How do I put a smile on that doctor's face? How do I put a smile on my partner's face? How do I put a smile on my supplier's face? And so it's really starting with that smile, because no matter what industry I speak with, the, the end's always going to be the same. How do I put a smile on someone's face? Otherwise, you're not going to be in business very long. And then you walk your way back. So you walk your way back, and that helps you solve that complex problem. And it also will help show to the higher-ups a little easier that oftentimes that solution or that problem can be solved by technology. And so that's a better way to approach it rather than attacking it from A to Z, not only from the complexity of solving the issue, but from the complexity of selling it up. Because if you don't get approval from the top, you're never going to execute on that transformation. You know, my co-host once said, you know, that we've been in healthcare for a very long time. And he says, I've been hearing about the nursing shortage for 20 years. When are we going to just start saying, right, that <laughs> it's not a shortage. This is the state of the state. And the way we're going to lead our way through that is to transform how nursing is applied, right? And that's this whole concept around virtual nursing and other great ideas that are coming in uh, the space. So I, there's also something else, Eric, that I see a lot that happens in our space it typically happens at conferences. They go, uh, leaders go there and they hear about this new thing, you know, like generative AI or machine learning, or these things are going to transform the way our, our industry is going to work. I sometimes refer to it as the shiny object syndrome or SOS. They get distracted by these little things that pop up, which may very realistically have some transformative changes in the long term. How do you deal with not getting distracted by the shiny objects? One of the great things about being in the healthcare space, or, and I'll call this no offense, but these laggard space, they're not at the forefront of technology usually, 
is the benefit of being in those spaces. You can watch the other verticals. Generally, the fastest moving verticals are, are entertainment uh, and also automotive moves very fast. So they're usually at the front in terms of from a marketing perspective, in terms of transformation, in terms of digital perspective. And obviously, you've got the apples and the technology companies are at the front. So you got tech, entertainment, and, and also automotive. And so you can look at those and then see what mistakes they made. But you can see that it's coming. And often you've got a couple of years head start to see where this is coming. And it eventually will. At first, most people will say that's not going to come in in our industry. Uh, for example, I worked with the Richemont Group. They own a lot of these luxury brands like Mont Blanc and Cartier. And so I was in a meeting in South Africa, actually, with these brands. There's 16 of them. And the head of Richemont was telling these CEOs that, look, people are going to buy a $15,000 watch online. It's going to happen. This is 12 years ago. Actually, Tony Hawk was sitting by me. It's pretty funny, the skateboarder. And so we're kind of laughing that we're in South Africa. But we were there to tell them, yes, this is coming to your industry. That industry is able to see it a couple of years out. But at first, they're going to say it's not coming to our industry. That's just normal human nature. But if it's happening in another industry, it is going to flow down into said industry. So in healthcare, you can already see it from Amazon getting the space to where if I want to get some medication that, of course, I'm used to using Amazon. Why wouldn't I have them just supply me that medication? It always will flow down into it. But you've got to, to your point, Chris, and this is really difficult, and this is where you can lean, and that's where you've got to use kind of your intuition a lot of times, is when are you, you, you only want to be a year at, one year ahead of your competition, but never a year ahead of your customer or your patient or your supplier. So you want to make sure you're just a year ahead of the competition, but never you're ahead of your market. And so a lot of this stuff we can see coming. We just can't get the timing. I can't get it right. Like people call me a futurist. I'm like, look, I can tell you what's going to come. We're going to have mobile voting for the president of the United States. You're going to vote for the president on your mobile phone. But I don't know when. If I could tell you the when, then I'd be the richest person in the world. But we just don't know when it's going to hit. QR codes come out in 2003. Pretty big, pretty white hot. No one adopts them. All of a sudden, pandemic habits. That's when they get adopted. So you think about that 17 years later. So you just don't know when the timing's going to occur. You've got to just place many bets on some of this stuff uh, so you don't overinvest because most of this stuff will come and go. Occasionally, it hits. So we think about generative AI. I think it's underhyped in the long term. I think it's overhyped in the short term. And I'm going to remove the word generative, just say AI. Yeah. So AI is going to be huge long term. Short term, it got white hot because they put a nice tool together with ChatGPT to show the masses the promise. And so what happens there is you've got the head of a healthcare systems all of a sudden reaching down to the CMO. Hey, are we doing anything with generative AI? And that guy has to guy or girl has to drop everything <laughs> to then dig into that. And so if you're that CMO, the key is to quickly get up to speed on it, but also quickly educate that person that's hearing the news. They're like, hey, this is coming, but right now it might be a little early. This is kind of what I propose that we test so we don't overinvest in stuff. So we make sure we say, yeah, you're ahead of the competition, but never hear the market. And most of the time that leader is going to be pretty reasonable if you approach it that way. So that's usually a good approach. But digging deeper on generative AI, if you were to ask me or AI, I think that it's going to be big. It's not here yet. There's still a lot of problems with it. I test it every day. And so we think about BARD or ChatGPT. They're great tools. I use them if I'm going to write a blog post or even write a press release that helps me get started. But the things do hallucinate. It'll tell people that, like, I went to University of Notre Dame, which isn't true because it'll make stuff up because that's part of the process of what it's trying to do. It's trying to not just regurgitate what's out there, but actually develop stuff like a human being would. But the problem with that is the tools aren't necessarily ready. They're getting better and better. Uh, but I don't know when it's going to be, but I think it's going to be a little longer than people think. I think that's true of any new technology. It's almost kind of like we're circling back to the beginning of our conversation, Eric, because um, we were talking about, you know, socionomics and how social media was the advent of this new technology that would change the way business occurs. And 
It did. Maybe not all the predictions came true, right? But it did. Our intuition kind of sensed at the time that this is something we need to look at. And I think it's true today. I love that you brought up that the healthcare leader should rely on their intuition to get educated, to make sense of it, and figure out how to apply it. It may or may not be applied the way we think about it today. It definitely will change the way we do business in the future. And I think it will change the way we deliver healthcare in the future as well. Eric, this conversation, I could just talk to you forever, and I'm so pleased that we had some chance to chat now, but I know there's people listening in that may not have seen you at the conference, but they really should learn a little bit more about you online. Can you share with people some ways they can they can find you and connect with you online? Yeah, this conversation's been wonderful, Chris. We'll have to do it again soon. I love everything you're doing in the space. And yeah, the easiest way to find me, as I said, my name's Eric Qualman. So first initial last name's just Equalman. So I'm at Equalman.com. I'm Equalman across all social channels. And so that's the easiest way to find me. If you do happen to read the Focus Project, I'd love to know which tool in that set in the book helped you the most because it's different for everybody. So I really appreciate the time for your audience and also for you, Chris, for uh, for the fantastic Thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. And we'll put links in the show notes for everybody. Eric, love this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. And yeah, definitely would love to have you back on again in the future. No, thank you, Chris. I'd love to be back. So it'd be great. Let's make it make a date. Okay. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. All right. Special thanks to Eric for coming on the show. Appreciate his time. And again, those that saw him in Austin, hopefully that was some additional value add there as well. If you hadn't, be sure to check him out and connect with him online. So I appreciate him coming on the show. Before we get out of here, a quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health and the TPS report and a couple of recommendations. What, what do you got today? Reed, I'm going to recommend an AI tool that I've been using. I mentioned a couple episodes ago about using Reed AI as my virtual assistant. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been playing around with different AI tools, and I came across one called Poised, P-O-I-S-E-D, Poised.com. And what Poised is, it's an AI tool. It listens to you as you present on video conferences, etc., And it gives you real-time feedback to help you become more clear, concise, and confident. And so what it does is as you're talking, a little screen pops up and it gives you a real-time dashboard of how you're you're performing. It says to you, slow down a little bit. You're talking too fast. Or you're using words that are too big and too complicated. It also allows you to, after meetings, it gives you a really brief feedback. What you have to do is when you download this app, I tried the free trial. There's an annual cost of $13 a month. I'll tell you, one of the things that I also like about it, I also don't like about it is having that real-time feedback because it's somewhat distracting. But nonetheless, you set it up, you put in your goals, you say, I want to talk clearer, I'm a consultant, I do this, whatever it is. And then it helps you to track your the way you talk, the way you uh, express yourself. It even gives you insights into you started your meeting two minutes late or consider shorting, shortening your meetings you know, by 10 minutes or 15 minutes or so to speak to be more efficient. So the app I'm going to recommend trying out, I would recommend there's a 14-day trial period. If you're looking to improve the way you present yourself online, try out Poised. You can find it at poised.com. That's my recommendation. I like it. Very nice. I am going to recommend, Chris, I bought a Tesla. I'm Uh-oh. recommending. I'm recommending an electric vehicle. Uh-oh. And then it's a lot of fun to drive and stuff like that. I mean, don't go buy a Tesla. I don't, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you are, let me know and I'll send you a referral link so we can all like get points or something or whatever happens there. I will say the buying experience, we should take some notes from this. I mean, it's just such a better experience than 
pretty much anything else. And don't know that I'll do it after the free trial, but the full self-driving is a pretty neat party trick. Yeah, I can just like autopilot to work. It's kind of wild. Yeah, let me know if you have one, uh, if there's anything I should know or uh, tips and tricks, but um, it's pretty handy, man. So let me be clear. Are you recommending a Tesla or are you recommending an electric vehicle? Well, I can't. I mean, I guess a Tesla because I'm not sure I can speak to. Well, I did did drive one of the BMW fully electric cars. But other than that, I don't have any experience with any of the other ones. So um, I can't really say to the other extent. The BMW is really expensive.